So these last two weeks, uh, as we've studied Genesis 1 and 2, we have seen God do something astonishing. He, he spoke a massive universe into existence out of nothing, and he formed a solar system, and he created beautiful planet Earth with oceans and sunsets and fruit trees and animals. And then he created Adam and Eve, gave them amazing bodies, gave them to each other, and placed them in the Garden of Eden. And so imagine that you were Adam and Eve. Up to this point, you would have seen God's perfect goodness, flawless goodness, perfect wisdom in everything he did, infinite power in creating this universe. You would have seen God as he really is, and you would have had every reason to trust him perfectly and to obey him instantly. And God had given Adam and Eve uh, one command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which meant, don't decide for yourselves what is good and evil. God is saying, trust me. I made you, I know. Trust me for what is good and evil for you. So that brings us to the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, we're left with a, a perfect world. Adam and Eve living in this beautiful paradise with bodies that would never die, perfect love for each other, and a world through which God would meet every one of their needs. End of chapter 2, a perfect world. So, what happened? How did we get here? Because here we all are with bodies that will die, right? And there's relationships in this world that are far from perfect love. They're ruined by hostility and by racism, and there's war, and there's prejudice, and there's oppression. And instead of a perfect world through which God meets all our needs, we're living in a world full of poverty, with pollution, with cancer. What has happened to the world we read about in Genesis chapter 2? Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 3. And what happens, as we will read, is that Adam and Eve did something horrifying. So what did Adam and Eve do? Start reading. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what's going on here? Who, who is this serpent? So we all know, and every Bible reader would have known that Serpents don't talk, so something else, someone else is talking through this serpent, and we know that what the serpent is saying is completely, 100% against God. He wants to disrupt what God has created here, and so we know it's Satan himself who is speaking through this 
serpent. So that's what's going on. Satan is tempting Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. And we can see, if you read carefully, you can see that sin has already entered Eve's heart. The reason I say that is because of what she says in verse 3. She quotes God as saying, neither shall we touch it. But if you read back in Genesis 2, God never said they couldn't touch it. So what's going on? Well, Eve is basically complaining about God having commands. She doesn't like the fact that God has given this command not to eat of this tree. So she's saying something like, God said we can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't even touch it. Wah, wah, wah. That's, that's what's in Eve's heart. Complaining, not happy about this commands. Who does God think he is making something off limits to us? Sin has already entered Eve's heart at this point. And sin has already entered Adam's heart at this point. How do we know? When we get to verse 6, we're going to see that Adam is standing right there while Satan is tempting Eve. He's there. God told him, before he created Eve, God told him, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam knew he needed to tell this to Eve. He needed to pass this on to Eve, and he had passed it on to her. But here, Satan is tempting his wife, and he's just watching football or something. Just sitting there, doing nothing. So he's not doing what God's called him to do, protecting, leading, holding up what God's standards are. So sin has also entered Adam's heart. So already at this point, sin has entered Eve's heart, and sin has entered Adam's heart. So what happens? Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God had said that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. But Satan said, you will not surely die. Which means that Satan is calling God a liar at this point. He is saying God is not good in what he's doing. And Satan says that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will become like God, able to decide for themselves, make their own choices, be in control of their own lives, choose what's right or wrong for themselves. So what did Adam and Eve do? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now notice how sin deceives here. She has let herself be deceived by sin. So the woman saw, oh, the tree is good for food. And it's a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Do you see the deception here? She's let herself be totally deceived by sin. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her the whole time, and he ate. Now this is horrifying, what's just happened. Because even though Adam and Eve had been given life by God, and given everything they need by God, and promised everything good forever from God, in their pride, they wanted to be like God. 
they wanted to decide for themselves how they should live, what they should do. So in their pride, they turned their backs on God and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is horrifying. And we've all done the same thing. We've all sinned, just like Adam and Eve have sinned. Because God has given us life. And God has given us everything we need. And God has promised that in Him we'll have everything we ever need, everything good. But in our pride, we wanted to be like God. And so in our pride, we chose, we wanted to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. And so we've turned our backs on God, and we've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've all done what Adam and Eve did. But Genesis 3 focuses on Adam and Eve. This is what they did. It's, it's absolutely horrifying, as Moses makes clear, because the next thing he does in this chapter is to show us seven results of what Adam and Eve did. What happened as a result of their eating? Seven results. First, they became vulnerable and needy. That's verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, that Hebrew word naked has the idea of being vulnerable and being needy. Up to this point, Adam and Eve were connected to God. God was protecting them. God was providing for them every need they had. God was right there. Up to this point, they were connected to God. But when they sinned, that sin made a separation between them and God. God has to judge sin. That sin cut them off from God. So here they are at this point. Everything's changed. Now they are cut off from God, and they are alone in the world. And they see that vulnerability and that neediness and in some pathetic attempt to take care of that, they sew themselves little Lloyd cloths. Not going to do much. Second, they hid from God. This is tragic. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Previously, oh, sweet fellowship. A God who's perfectly good flawlessly wise, infinitely powerful, worshiping, fellowshipping, loving, filling their hearts with joy, but not this time. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So before they'd enjoyed heart-filling fellowship with God, now they knew they've sinned against God. They knew they deserved judgment from God, and so they hide. Again, pathetic attempt at hiding. Third, this is also tragic. Instead of repenting of their sin, they blamed others. Start in verse 9. But the Lord God calls to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God knows that he did, but he wants to impress upon Adam 
that God knows and what Adam did. So have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Blaming God and the woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you feel how heartbreaking this is? Do you see what sin does to our hearts? Instead of, God, we're sorry. What have we done? We're so wicked. We're so foolish. Forgive us. Instead of confessing, instead of repenting, you gave her to me, God. The serpent deceived me, God. Hard hearts. Oh, sin is merciless. When we choose sin, our hearts just freeze shut towards God. Hard hearts, not repenting, not confessing, blaming instead. Fourth, God curses Satan, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, what does this curse in verse 14 mean? Now, remember, God's talking to the serpent, but who's talking through the serpent? It's Satan. So God's addressing Satan here. And in the Old Testament, the language of eating dust, eat dust, you, when, when that phrase is used, it meant you're going to be totally humiliated and completely annihilated and destroyed. And that's what God is saying to the serpent. You are going down. Serpent, Satan, you will be completely humiliated and totally destroyed. Beautiful curse. We love that curse, right? Verse 14. Then in verse 15, God gives three promises, which we're going to come back to in a moment. We will come back to those. That's like the main point of the whole passage. But fourth is that God curses Satan. And then fifth, God curses Eve. Verse 16. Remember, they've sinned. God's judgment. God has to judge sin. In his righteousness, he curses sin. And these curses are far less than are deserved. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring children. Stop right there. So God says that all women, even all women, are going to experience pain in childbirth. Now this is not a command, so it's not wrong to take steps to alleviate pain in childbirth, but God is simply saying a consequence of sin is that women will now experience pain in childbirth. Then look at the end of verse 16. Puzzling statement. God says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now what does that mean? Well, we could just sit back and think, well, it might mean this, or it might mean that. But here's the better step to take. It saves a lot of time. Try to find other places in the Bible where that same language is used. 
And in the very next chapter, both of those words are used, the word desire being for something and ruling over something. The exact same Hebrew words are used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So we're going to put them both up here. On the, there we go, so you can compare them. Now, here's the setting in Genesis chapter 4. Here's what's going on. In chapter 4, Cain is angry because he brought a half-hearted nothing offering before God, and God was not pleased with it. And Cain's angry. So look at what God says to Cain, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, so Cain is angry. He brought this half-hearted, wimpy, nothing, lukewarm offering to God, and God was not pleased. So Cain's angry that God's not pleased. Here's what God says to him, Genesis 4, verse 7. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That is, sin wants to control you, wants to dominate you. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin's desire is to control you, is for you. But you must rule over it, resist it, oppose it, conquer it, subdue it. So this language of desire for something and ruling over something, it's a picture of conflict. It's a picture of warfare. And that's what God is saying will happen to marriages as a result of the fall. Back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband. He's saying a result of the fall is that wives will sinfully desire to conquer, overcome, control, rule their husbands. And husbands sinfully in response will rule over them, will seek to conquer them, to put a stop to what they're doing. And so here's two sinful responses. And we've got war in marriages. Does that happen? Yes, it does. This is a consequence of the fall. Now, this is totally, this is not the biblical pattern of marriage. This is what sin does to marriage. Let me say that again. This is not the, Genesis 3.16 is not the biblical pattern for marriage. This is what sin does to a marriage. The biblical pattern for marriage is the husband being the servant leader. He's the leader head of the household, but he's the servant leader, and his model is Jesus laying his life down for the church. The husband leads as a way of serving, laying his life down for the wife and the kids. And then the wife follows the husband's lead, follows the husband's lead as his loving helper. That's the biblical pattern for marriage. But what Moses points out is that a result of sin is that God curses women with pain in childbirth, and brings conflict and turmoil into marriages. Sixth, God curses Adam, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, till you die. You will die. That body will die. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So from this point on, Genesis 3, it'll be hard to grow food. It'll be hard to make a living 
It'll be hard to provide for family. And you will die. That body will die. One last point, seventh point. Tragic. God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from the tree of life. That's verses 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's a beautiful description of mercy. It might be a pointer towards animal sacrifices, which are a pointer towards the cross, possibly. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That is, Adam and Eve and all humanity are going to be turning their backs on God, turning their backs on us in pride and trying to decide for themselves what's right or wrong, being independent of us. So he says, therefore, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They want to be like God. They want to make up their own minds in terms of what's right and what's wrong. But God said if they did that, they would surely die. They would surely die. But if they ate of the tree of life, they would not die. And so God needed to cast them out of the garden to have what he said take place. And so he sent them out of the garden, away from the tree of life, and as a result, they and you and me, we have bodies that will die. That's why, right here. That's why. So here's seven horrifying consequences that have taken place because of what Adam and Eve did, because of their sin. Their sin had separated them from God, so they are vulnerable and needy in the world, cut off from God all alone. Their guilt made them hide from God. Their sin hardened their hearts, so they weren't confessing, repenting, they're blaming. God cursed Satan, which was a good thing, but God also cursed Eve with pain in childbirth and tensions in marriage, and then God cursed Adam with difficulty in working and providing and with death. They were going to die. And then God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from the tree of life, which meant that they now have bodies which are going to die. So Moses, at this point, wants us to feel this shuddering that has happened to the globe. Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, disobeyed a perfectly good, flawlessly wise, infinitely powerful God. It's kind of like the, like the globe shook with this tragedy. Everything changed from that moment on. Everything changed in the world. God's curse has fallen upon the world. And so the shift from chapter 2 to chapter 3 is heartbreaking. And Moses wants us to feel horrified at what Adam and Eve and us have done. But that's not all Moses wants us to feel. Moses also wants us to feel worship and praise to God because of verse 15. Verse 15. Why should we worship and praise God? Now, here's the setting. 
Again, God had done everything for Adam and Eve. He had given and given and given and given. They'd received perfect good from God, everything they needed. They'd been given life and bodies and each other and, and this beautiful world to live in. They saw, God, you're perfectly good. You're flawlessly wise. You're infinitely powerful. They had every reason to trust him instantly and obey him gladly, happily. And Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to be in control. They're little creatures Little creatures who need everything. And they said, no, we want to be on our own. Right? And you've done the same thing. I've done the same thing. And so God has every reason to pour his judgment out upon Adam and Eve and all of us and damn us forever. I mean, damn literally. It's exactly what God has every reason to do. The cosmic wickedness that Adam and Eve have done and which we all have done is horrifying. But God doesn't cast everyone into judgment. God doesn't do that. Look at what he says in verse 15. Three promises God gives us. Scholars call this verse the proto-evangelium. Jot that down, okay? You're going to be quizzed on this. So it's a Latin word for first gospel. This is the first place in the Bible where the gospel is seen. Right there in the chapter about the fall. Don't you love this? Mm. Three promises. Look at what God promises to do. First promise. Remember, God's talking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. What does that mean? See, up to this point, Eve and the serpent had no enmity, no opposition between them. They were on the same team. The serpent wanted the woman to sin, and the woman wanted to sin. The serpent wanted the woman and Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the woman and Adam wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was no enmity up to this point between the serpent and between Eve. They were in agreement. They were on the same side. They wanted the same thing. But here God promises, I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent, which means, God is saying, I am going to change the woman's heart. Right now, chapter 3, her heart is deceived by sin. Her heart is blaming. She's not confessing. She's not repenting. She's hiding. She wants to be like God. She is proud. Adam too, both of them together. But God says, I'm going to reach down from heaven. This is called regeneration in the Bible, or being born again is the phrase that Jesus used. God's going to reach down from heaven to Eve's heart, and he's done this for Many of us in this room, when we were still sinful, we didn't want God. We were blaming. We were hiding. We were deceived. We, we wanted to be like God. And God reached down from heaven to us rebellious people who didn't want this. And he, in his mercy, changed our hearts. He took out our hearts of stone, as Ezekiel 36 says, and he gives us hearts of flesh. And your heart's changed. And all of a sudden, what am I doing? God, you are beautiful. I love you. I worship you. I hate Satan. I hate sin. Forgive me. Change me. Where did that heart come from? Didn't come from you. 
You're hiding. Your serpent made me do it. You brought her to me, right? Deceived. And God just says, I'm going to change Eve's heart. I'm going to put enmity between the serpent and between Eve. This is regeneration. God sovereignly, mercifully, graciously changes our hearts. That's the first promise. That's what God would do for Eve, but it's not just Eve that God does this for. Look at the second promise. Remember, God's talking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity also between your, the serpent's offspring, and her, Eve's offspring. So who are the serpent's offspring? Again, the serpent is Satan. Who are Satan's offspring? This is a picture of those who, like all of us have been Satan's offspring, those who have continued in sin, right? We've all been Satan's offspring. So who are Eve's offspring? It's those whose hearts God has changed. It's those who, who God has reached down and supernaturally, sovereignly taken out the hearts of stone, given faith, given repentance towards God. So God's not just going to bring about this incredible heart change for Eve. He's going to do this for, the Bible says in Revelation, a massive number that no one can count from every nation and tongue and tribe. That's what God's going to do. One more question, though. How can God do this? God is just. Every sin must be punished. No sin can just get swept under the rug and forgotten about. Every sin must be punished. So how can God bring forgiveness, heart change upon people who've sinned? Third promise. Remember, God is talking to the serpent. He shall bruise your, the serpent's, head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, bruising a serpent on the head would destroy the serpent, right? Crush a serpent's head, destroyed. So, so what God is promising here is that one of Eve's offspring, Eve, one of your great, 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 great grandchildren, is going to destroy Satan. I've just said Satan's going to eat dust, and one of your offspring's going to do it. So here's the question. Who is the offspring of Eve that destroyed Satan? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. My Lord, my Savior, your Lord, your Savior. And how did he do that? By dying on the cross, which is what's alluded to by the fact that the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, if a serpent bruises your heel, that's a minor wound. It doesn't destroy you. The cross killed Jesus, didn't destroy Jesus. Jesus rose again. He is our resurrected and living Lord and King and Savior today. But he was wounded on the cross, right? So this is a prophecy about Jesus destroying Satan by dying on the cross and paying for our sins. So as we read the rest of the scriptures, Genesis 3.15 unfolds and gets more and more clear because what it shows us is that God himself 
God, the God who created Adam and Eve, the God who brought them to each other, gave them life, the God against whom they have committed treason by sinning and rebelling, wanting to be like God, such pride, such wickedness. To save them, God came to earth in the person of Jesus, and God was willing to be punished in our place to forgive our sins, to pay for our sins. And so Jesus came, God in the flesh, and allowed his hands to be nailed to a cross and his feet to be nailed to a cross and for hours to be hanging in absolute agony, which we can't even conceive. But far worse than that is that the wrath, the just wrath of God for my sin, for your sin, was being poured out upon Jesus on the cross until he finally said, it is finished. It is finished. Sins, punishment has been paid. Satan's power has been broken. It is finished. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, fulfilled. Okay, now, notice what Moses is doing here in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Genesis 1, we see it is good. It is good. It is good. God does this. It is good. God does this. It is good. God is really good. Genesis 2. Wow. God's even, I mean, there's more of goodness flowing out here. God is just like giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. God is so good. He's so good. He's so good. End of chapter 2. Perfect world. Now here, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve turn on God. We want to be like God. Who says you get to be the God? We want to be like God. And they, in their pride, turn away from God, and God's curse comes upon them, and God has every reason to cast them into hell forever. And what does God do? We've seen goodness up to this point, but nothing like Genesis 3.15. God chooses to send his own son. God comes to earth in the person of Jesus and is punished in Adam and Eve's place for their sins. So then God can't bring his power upon Eve and Adam, and change their hearts, give them faith, give them repentance, cause them to be born again, and then they repent, they put their trust in Christ, they're forgiven for all their sins, they're reconciled to God. Do you see how as good as God was in chapter 2, his goodness is even more powerfully displayed, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, his goodness is even more powerfully displayed in chapter 2, and even more powerfully displayed in chapter 3? What? God will be punished for rebels who are committing treason against his kingdom. Our God. Our God. And so Moses wants us not just feeling the horror of Adam and Eve's sin and our sin. Moses wants us just to be rocked, just to be wow with the, the mercy, the goodness of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So what does this mean for us? Grace Church, what does this mean for us? Let me give you three takeaways. First of all, praise God for his mercy. Adam and Eve and you and I, we were dead in sin. We had willfully chosen sin, our hearts were hardened by sin. We were deceived by our sin. We were blaming. We were not confessing. We were not repenting. We were dead in sin. We wouldn't confess. We wouldn't repent. We were just shaking our fist in God's face. 
And God went to the cross and paid for our sins. And in great mercy, because of the cross, God reaches down and he changes hearts. If you are trusting Jesus Christ right now, if you are loving and trusting Jesus Christ, that did not come from you. That is an entire 100% gift from God, purchased at the price of his own son being punished on the cross. We've sinned. God, in great love and unconditional mercy, has saved. Praise be to God. Thank you, Father. I was running towards hell as fast as my little legs could carry me. And God just said, I'm going to save that one. I'm going to save that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. one." He just reaches down and saves. So fall on your knees before God and thank him for his mercy and his goodness. This should completely humble us and should exhilarate us in how glorious and merciful and good God is. Grace Church, let's be a church where whether we're here or whether we're out throughout Abu Dhabi, but people can tell these people love their God. They love their God. They're humbled at their God and they worship their God. So praise God for his mercy, first of all. Secondly, don't let there be tensions in your marriage. Okay, we talked about that. Yes, there's tensions in marriage as a result of the fall. But Jesus Christ can redeem your marriage from that aspect of the curse. Completely. And so I want to encourage you, husbands, step up to the plate. That's what we say in America. That's a baseball figure. Okay, I know a lot of you know about cricket. Maybe it works too. Husbands, time to step up to the plate. First of all, go to the Lord yourself, all by yourself, and just pray. And ask God to change your heart so that you can forgive Jesus Christ can enable you to forgive your wife for whatever she's done. I mean that literally. Whatever she's done, Jesus can change your heart so you forgive. Maybe one big thing, maybe a whole lot of little things that just built up. He will give you the, the ability by his grace in your heart to forgive. So first you're praying, Jesus help me. Because you don't want to start talking to her and have all this anger come out. So get rid of this anger. Help me to forgive. And then go to her this week. Hun, can we talk? I, I want things to be better between us. And I'm sorry for what I've done. Husbands, write that one down. I'm sorry for what I've done, okay? You don't say, here's the things I'm concerned that you've done. It, 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 I'm sorry for what I've done. Would you forgive me? And then just see what the Lord does. But so men, take the step. Do not settle for tensions, warring, conflict, in your marriage. The cross can redeem your marriage from the curse. Don't settle for the curse remaining one more week. That's my word to you, husbands. Third, be honest about your heart. Here's what I mean. Has God changed your heart? Has he put enmity between you and the serpent? You can pray a prayer and not have your heart get changed if you don't really mean the prayer. When God saves people, he changes their hearts. And and that will move them to to pray and confession and repentance and Jesus, save me, forgive me, I love you. But you can mouth a prayer and walk away and 
and not have experienced this regenerating, rebirthing work that God promises here. So ask yourself, has your heart been changed? Do you love Jesus more than anything? That's one of the ways you can tell. Now, none of us do that perfectly. Okay, there's ups and downs. We, I experienced that. We all experienced that. But, but is there a trend in your life where, yes, you do love? There, there are many times when you are loving Jesus more than anything. See, that never happens to the old heart. That only happens with the new heart. But do you have times where you love Jesus Christ more than anything? Not what he gives. Not, oh, I love health or I love money. No, no, no. Jesus, his glory, his beauty, his goodness, his person, who he is. Are there times when you love Jesus Christ more than anything? If yes, then bow down and thank God because that was a gift God gave and he purchased it through the cross. If no then I have good news for you. You don't know yet what it means to be a Christian. And I would guess you've been trying really hard to do this thing, and you're wondering why it's so awfully hard. It's because your heart hasn't been changed yet. And here's the good news. Turn to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, change my heart. Forgive me. I want to turn from sin. Change my heart. Today, save me. And if you mean that from your heart, he will. You'll be born again. You'll be regenerated. You'll be a brand new person. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. A new creature. Has that happened to you? Don't leave here today without calling upon Jesus to change your heart. Because he will. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. Lord, I ask that you unleash the power of your word so that when we leave here today, we would be praising you maybe more than ever for your grace and mercy and goodness. Let us see the wonder that when we were dead in sin, running away from you, that you, at great cost to yourself, would purchase salvation for us and would change our hearts through Jesus. So fill us with worship and praise for your mercy. God, I pray for marriages here where there's conflict, there's, there's evidence of the curse. God, I pray that this week there could be sweet, gentle, loving conversations. Please, Lord, do that, I ask. And healing and forgiveness. Do that, God. Bless the marriages here. And then, Lord, for those here who have not yet experienced you putting enmity between the serpent and them, right now, Lord, move them to call upon Jesus, to repent, to confess, to turn from their sin, to look to Jesus, and then change them, Lord, right now, we pray. Do that, we ask. In Jesus' name, let's worship the Lord.